such a powerful and controversial gospel text this morning. Reminding us that to share in this holy meal of Eucharist, of Holy Communion, is to share in the very person of Jesus. And in that sense, he abides in us. And that is the title of our series this morning, Us, Us. We are a people united by a common rescue. We are a people who have one common story that binds us all together, and it's the story of Jesus, his goodness, his grace, his compassion. The fact that he stepped into our situation, expressing not only his goodness and his love, but his sovereignty in saving us and making for himself a people. And in this series that we're beginning today, we're beginning it today in the midst of ordinary time, common time. And that's not a very exciting, I wish they had come up with a better name for this, right? Ordinary time or rather common time. Um, but as I was praying and thinking about our church family here in our community and thinking about what begins at this time of the year in the heart of ordinary time is back to school. Back to school. My daughter, my youngest daughter started high school Friday. Pray my strength in the Lord, as the saints used to say. Whew. And my middle daughter starts college tomorrow, and I am old. So let's pray. This is a season in which people with children get busy, get active, families start to pick up. It's sort of like a new year, uh, January part two that starts for a lot of people. And I wanted to make sure that we brought something to the house, brought something to you that reminded you that God is present in the ordinary that God is present in the mundane and the boring and the pedestrian dimensions of our lives. And everybody who's not a stuntman or a rock star said, amen. I'm glad God shows up in ordinary time. And the hope is that we want to bless your families with encouragement, but also with focus, with some wisdom as this new school year begins. I don't know if anybody's familiar with something called a Dunning-Kruger effect. I would expect, expect some folks in the sanctuary to say, yeah, I know exactly what that is. I wrote a paper on it. Does anybody here know Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger effect, simply put, is this dilemma. I don't even know what we want, epidemic now, when we tend to consider our knowledge more complete than it is. It's the tendency to consider your knowledge more complete than it is. We're very blessed in Sanctuary to have so many people who work in the medical field. And I'm guessing if you're a nurse, a PA, a doctor, a surgeon, if you work in the medical field, you encounter the Dunning-Kruger effect on a regular basis thanks to the internet and WebMD. People walk into your office considering their knowledge that they just got off of Wikipedia to be more complete than it actually is. I'm here as a professional clergyman to tell you the church is probably even worse 
especially regarding family issues. The problem is families are everywhere. Everybody seems to have one. Families are our source of our greatest, uh, they're the source of our greatest joy, but also our greatest sorrow. They are probably the consumers of our greatest energy and attention and resources. And those resources are expended in the effort uh, to do family well. I think the question we have to ask ourselves as we begin this series of sermons is to say, what makes a successful family? What are our benchmarks? What are our goals? And I'm of the opinion, and it's just an opinion, that the American family has kind of sent the, set the benchmark a little bit low, a little bit. Basically, if we stay together, we're a tremendous success. Hello? When half of marriages end in divorce, that's pretty good. If we stay together, we did good. If you throw in a pinch of happiness throughout the year, even to the point that the majority of your days are happy days, this is a successful family for so many people. Of course, it's getting uh, stranger and stranger because people are marrying less and less. So the, the, the rate of people who wake up and say, I'm going to marry that girl. Even though there's a 50% chance we're going to get divorced, we're going to lose a whole lot of money and hate each other, I'm going to marry that girl. You see, in 1960, the marriage rate was 72%. Pew Research. 72%. Basically, three-quarters of people said, we got to get married. Of course, there was some morality that went with that, right? And that is, if I want to have a good time, I've got to get married if I'm going to be respectable. But when that morality goes out the window, the need to get married kind of goes with it. A pastor friend of mine, uh, his son was, uh, got engaged after living with his girlfriend for many, many years. And the pastor was in Nashville. The son was in that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah called New York City. And I can say it because I'm from there. And the, pa the pastor friend calls me up and he's like, I'm so grateful that you're going to do premarital counseling for my son. I said, yeah, no, no, I'm happy to help in any way that I can. He said, but could you just try to sneak in a question for me? I said, why? Uh, what, what's the question? He said, could you ask him why he's even bothering? He's been living with her for eight years. And it's a fair question. Why bother with this? I think part of the thing that we need to consider here is the idea of the family itself has become politicized. It's become commodified. Politicians use it to get themselves elected. All the while, we know that the story rings too consistently true that the politician who tends to cite family values the loudest is living them the least. And that counts for preachers too, which is why I'm just going to get out of the sermon as quickly as I can. <laughs> I'm setting myself up for an attack of the devil this week. <laughs> uh, if you believe in that sort of thing. But uh, the thing that can... Not everybody. Anyway, I'm going to start trouble with that. But here's the problem, right? I'm more concerned about the commodification than the politicization because I'm not looking at a room full of politicians, but I am looking at a room full of people who might be tempted to use their family as a form of status. 
to use the family as a form of legitimization or, or, or validation, that somehow if I'm a good dad or I'm a great mom or we have a happy marriage, it means I've arrived. And friends, listen, the things that are most valuable are the ones that are most easily commodified. And a family is much more valuable than your IRA, your 403B. It's much more valuable than any sort of material thing you could collect. Would we all agree on that? Right? That, whoa, I got a couple nods and one amen. Is your family valuable? Okay, thank you. You can just say yeah or something. You don't have to get preachy and Christian. Just yes, it's valuable. (laughs) And so I I, want to ask, like, what, how are we seeing our families and specifically what makes them successful? What makes them headed in the right direction? I don't even mean successful in uh, crass materialistic ways. I mean successful in good families. And there's a quote that I came across originally as a footnote in a book because I read footnotes because I'm a nerd. And I decided to actually read the book that the footnote was pointing to as one of the best books I ever read. It was by a Greek Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann, and it's called For the Life of the World. And in this book, listen to what Schmemann says, be mad at him, not at me. Can I say that at the outset? This is not me. I'm just a messenger. You can wrestle with it all you want. Don't be mad. At this. Talk to me at the door. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery or lack of adjustment or mental cruelty. It is the idolization of the family itself. The refusal to understand marriage as directed toward the kingdom of God. This is expressed in the sentiment that one would, quote, do anything for his family, even steal. The family has here ceased to be for the glory of God. It has ceased to be a sacramental entrance into his presence. It is not the lack of respect for the family It is the idolization of the family that breaks the modern family so easily, making divorce its almost natural shadow. What do we do with this? As a pastor, when you read something like this, frankly, my first thought is, I don't want my family to break My second thought is, I don't want your family to break. And the idolization of the family is so nuanced and so subtle that it slips in under the radar. And before we know it, we're wondering why we're sitting with Pastor Brent and Pastor Janice trying to see if this is salvageable. And this leads to a question, and this is just for your own consideration. Is there such a thing even as a Christian family? I mean, there was Christian rock, and we know how that turned out. (laughs) Come on. And there's people that don't even want to call themselves Christians. Everybody's a Christ follower now, because that's cool. I'm being sarcastic. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm wondering, are there people who are faithfully devoted to the worship of Jesus Christ in ways that cause them to live differently? And if those sorts of people make up a family unit, what do you call that family? Like, in other words, there's some question that I think is worth asking at the outset of thinking about the family, and that is, 
Is our lived experience measurably or noticeably different because we claim allegiance to Jesus? We're all sickened this week when we hear of another horrible, there aren't the right adjectives to describe the news that came out of Pennsylvania this week, of another diocese in the Roman Catholic Church that has been covering up abuse. There are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Roman Catholics who this morning could not get themselves out of bed to go to the table of the Lord because of this wickedness. And we all know that there's a certain logic and legitimacy to expect that if you claim allegiance to this Jesus, if you claim to take him seriously, you should be different on some level. Not perfect. We'll settle for different. We'll settle for occasional fireworks shows of, of goodness. We'll settle for that. But there shouldn't be this sort of moral bankruptcy. Sorry to use a loaded term, but just popped into my head. Families are prevalent throughout the Bible. There's probably 25 or more genealogies. I'm sure they're highlighted and underlined in your Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And maybe if for nothing else, all those genealogies that we skip over in the reading plan that we stick with till about February 23rd, that thing, friends, listen, at the very least, doesn't it communicate the importance of family on some level? On some level? If we believe that genealogies are in some sense inspired, in some sense related to Scripture, I mean, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's a holy family right there. Family is the predominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament. Your Bible is filled, your New Testament Scriptures specifically are filled with this address, brothers and sisters. Later on in this service, we're going to pray together. When we pray, we're going to pray our Father because that's how we were taught to pray. But Jesus had some odd things to say about the family. Now, I'm a turning your Bible kind of guy, so break out the iPhone, break out the Scriptures, whatever works for you. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to bounce through these quickly, so if you just want to pretend you're following along, that's perfectly fine. Luke chapter 14. Crowds show up to Jesus in verse 25. And look at what he says in the 26th verse. If anyone comes to me, pretty inclusive, pretty wide open, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he should have put aunts and uncles in this list, right? He's got everybody here. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's Luke 14, 26. If anyone does not hate his family. Well, this is hyperbole to be sure, but it is confusing. We're supposed to love our enemies, Jesus tells us, and now he's saying, hate your family. I'm glad nobody said amen right there, because that would have been an awkward moment to be sure. But here's, here's what Augustine points out about that particular text. He says, hating your family there, what Jesus is saying, you have such a love for the age to come. 
and how that age is going to free us from all of the complexities and burdens that come with family. Not that you know anything about that. Let's go back a couple pages. Luke chapter 9. Starting at verse 59, the context here is that we've got people volunteering to join Jesus' crew, and he says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I don't know that he said it that way, but I wanted to. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, that's pretty rude. I mean, would you say that a funeral for a parent is a pretty important thing? And good kids should be there to take care of their parents in their older years and when they pass away. Right, Bryn? Thank you. That's my daughter. Let's go to Matthew. Jesus is on a roll. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, 46 through 50. Jesus is speaking to people. Behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And searching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoa. Jesus is now juxtaposing his natural relatives against these disciples. I love this quote from Augustine, and I think this gets to the heart of all of these excerpts from the Gospels. Augustine says, It is greater for Mary to have been a disciple of Christ than the mother of Christ. It is greater for Mary to have been a disciple of Christ than the mother of Christ. And by mother, he's speaking in the natural, of course. Because this reality that we find really culminating at the table of the Lord, but being explicated through these gospel texts, is that Jesus is from the future. He's from God's eternity, from the age to come. Jesus comes with the fullness of reality. And in the fullness of reality, family is different. And if we're people who are living from the future, family needs to be different for us. Not an idol, not a commodity, not something that a politician can use to get themselves elected. If there was such a thing as a Christian family, using it in the best sense of the word Christian, what would it look like? How would it be different? I want to sketch out very quickly, and this will be quick, so we're going to check again our dexterity on getting around the Bible here. I want to look at Abraham's family and highlight, I think you should be familiar, hopefully, with the story of Abraham, and highlight a few sketches that I think show us what a family in the kingdom of God can look like, because Abraham's the father of our faith. We see more about Abraham's family than we see about most other families in Scripture, so let's look, if we will, first and foremost at Genesis 18. So here's going to be my first pitch out to everybody in the room, and that is a family of faith is a family that is focused on and bound to future generations by a personal sense of God's covenantal promises and God's purpose. Genesis 18 is a story of God 
deciding to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's an interesting side note here, starting at verse 16. Uh, Let's start at 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then he tells us something about Abraham. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The first hallmark or sketch, if you will, of a family of faith is you're focused on and you're bound to, you're committed to the generation beyond you in ways that wants to see them live faithfully into the promises God has made for you and for your house. In other words, it begs the question, what has God spoken over your family? What sort of North Star is there for your family to anchor to, to look to specifically, that gives you a sense of purpose, gives you a sense of God's faithfulness and God's call to you? You have to remember something. God created the universe with words, right? He launched Israel with words. When his son came, his son came as the word. When you got married, if you got married, your marriage began with words. What are the two magic words? I do. Some of you might want to rehearse those. I thought we get like a great easy response there. When you get married, you say, I do. Here's, another, here's the second one. I told you we're going to move quickly. A faithful family, a family of faith is different than other families because even its broken past is a resource for the future. Even its brokenness in its past is a resource for the future. Turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, starting at verse 3, it says, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, Abram, her husband, as a wife. Everybody say, awkward. Verse 4, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Reality TV cameras are pulling in now. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. Thank you for laughing because that's an appropriate response right now. Like, wow, Sarai. I gave you my servant to your embrace And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Whoa. We know the story. We know that ultimately uh, Hagar and Ishmael end up being cast out and cast away. And God has to make a promise, words, to Hagar. And what does he say? Don't worry. The slave woman, it's an important term. He says "The the son of the slave woman will become a mighty nation. What was the name of the son of the slave woman? Ishmael. Call me. Oh, forget it. Do you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and telling his dreams 
and they were determined to kill him. And right before they were about to kill him, Judah stepped in and said, don't kill him, sell him to the slave traders. The son of the slave woman will become a mighty nation. Joseph, who went to Egypt, the Bible says, in order to save the nation of Israel, was himself saved by Ishmaelite traitors. The son of the slave woman, his descendants bought a slave named Joseph and took him down to Egypt. Friends, some of us have Hagar's in our past. Some of us have stories where we took advice and we did things that were not wise, were not smart, and those decisions have consequences. And you can't get away from the consequence. Sometimes the consequence has his name, and his name is Ishmael. And you can't just pretend it didn't happen. There he is, living and breathing, looking at you. And what I want to tell you this morning is when you're a family of faith, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't have an Ishmael in your past. It means your Ishmael has potential to be your rescue in the future. It means the mistakes and the failures of your past inside of your family ultimately can serve God's good and purposes for your family. This is what a family, a family that doesn't have faith has to make excuses or cut off or write off all of their mistakes and failures. The family of faith says God's not done with Ishmael yet. Thirdly, it seems like the family of faith recognizes that happiness is not the greatest good. Happiness is not the greatest good. Happiness is never something we pursue, it's something that pursues us. Happiness is not something we acquire, it's something we receive. Genesis 22, if we stop there, this is the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Talk about having a hard time talking your kids to go to church. Let's go up a mountain and I'm going to kill you when we get there. Make sure you wear a tie. Well, it's a joke, but it's not a joke because we have to realize the first time the word worship shows up in your Bible, it's not about songs and it's not about 10 strings. It's about murder. The fifth verse of Genesis 22, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Friends, getting up early in the morning and hiking to the top of a mountain because God said to do it is not fun. We don't like to get in our cars and drive places in air conditioning. We have nice couches, all of us, I promise you. But it's not just the hiking, it's not just the early morning, it's not just the rough terrain, it's the fact that the whole point is to kill your son. Look at what God says, of course, after Abraham offers his son and God steps in. At verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son. Parents, release your children. Bring them to where they need to be and let go of them. 
Because you have done this, I will surely bless you, verse 17. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And look at this. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Blessing flows from obedience. And obedience is almost impossible. Please hear what I'm saying. Oh, I don't know for sure. My guess is obedience is almost going to be impossible if our happiness is a prerequisite. Okay. I got to keep moving. The last and final sketch I want to point out here is that a faith of family lives in the present with God's promised future in view. Sarah dies, as all humans do, the wife of Abraham. And I want to draw your attention to this 23rd chapter of Genesis. And Abraham has to buy a field to bury his wife. These are family issues. If you've been through funerals, you know questions about what funeral home we use. Do they have a plot? This is all family issues. And we choose these things intentionally. Notice that Abraham buys a plot of land. Look at verse 20, the last verse of Genesis 23. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. What happened? Abraham went into the promised land that God said he was going to give him, and he paid money for that land. He was willing to pay the price for what God had promised in order to make a statement to his family. I'm putting mom in this soil because God is giving us this soil. We don't have it yet. It's going to cost us some money now, but we're putting it in the future. We're putting it into our present. Friends, can I encourage you? This has been my experience in 45 years on the planet is that God's promises come at some expense to us. There's something that we, he wants to invite us into the participation. There's a price that comes with promises. There's a price that comes with promises. And the moment we think, oh, this is just going to happen is the moment we almost never see it happen. Now, we are not the prime agent. We are not the prime mover. We're not the person who is responsible for bearing up the fulfillment of the promises. But God is relational, and he is always going to invite us into this sort of practice. And I think as Christian families, in the best sense of the term, we are families who pri whose priorities and our practices reflect the age to come. In other words, when Canaan will be ours. When we will cross Jordan into the promised land, we are people whose practices reflect that age and that time and not just like this moment is everything. And this is a moment for me to stop and speak to everybody in the room who's single and maybe has been groaning on the inside from the moment they heard this sermon series. They're like, God, he's going to talk about this more than one Sunday? <sighs> Sidebar for every single person in the room, and while I say that, for every person who's not single, can I make an announcement? Can you just give me permission? You're supposed to say yeah or something there. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm feeling very Pentecostal. I've got a fever. I'm warm today. Uh, let me make an announcement. Single people don't need to be fixed. 
They're not on the bench waiting for Boaz. Single people and married people need to remember that. When we think that way, it shows that we love this age, not the age to come. Because hear me now, every single person in the body of Christ stands as a prophetic signpost to every married person that in eternity it will not be so. There will be no marrying and there will be no giving in marriage. And so every single person is a prophet who by their very existence says, this is what we're all going to be like because Jesus will be enough. You see, our Christian families show us what will be, and that is the family of God. The single people show us how we will be, and that is fully contented and fulfilled in Christ, who will be all in all. We're late today, and so I'm going to close this incredibly quickly to simply say, our children are watching us, singles and married. Are we different? How are we different? Those four quick sketches. Just read through the story of Abraham's life. It's absolutely fascinating. Are we going to join the rest of America and idolize our families? A single person sitting here feeling condemned because they don't have a spouse. That is the curse of temporal current culture. The single person who says, I'm part of the family of God and he's plugged me in so that these kids are my kids. These families are my families because there's really only one father. That's where there's hope. That's where there's life. That's when there's a person who's living from the future. Our kids are watching us. Can I ask you just this question? Is there a big gap between church dad and after work dad? Is there a gap between how we conduct ourselves when we're around Christians and how we conduct ourselves otherwise. Kids are watching. They're shaped by our silence as much as our language. Do they ever hear a spiritual word come out of our mouths? Do they ever see us pray, see us read a Bible? Are we able to have a conversation about the kingdom of God ever? If we can't, what are we communicating not only with our words but our silence? What if rather than working directly on being great parents, we were passionate and working on being led by the Spirit? See, that's why the subtitle of this series matters so much, and that is we want to cultivate the life of the Spirit, not give you tips to being a better parent. We want to give you practical wisdom. We want to give you insight. But there's a lot of practical wisdom to be found all around the world. We are the place of the Spirit. It would seem to me that if we walk in the Spirit in ways that produce the fruit of the Spirit, our families would be radically changed. It'd be nice to be in a home where it was marked by joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. How about gentleness if you have young kids? Faithfulness. How about self-control if you have older kids? Fruit of the Spirit in our home might be a pathway forward? What if we were living into a faith that was holistic, that integrated what we believe on Sunday morning in church and how we talk and how we live and how we choose? The Spirit is active in ordinary life, in ordinary time. There's a reason it flows out of Pentecost. 
I'll leave you with this quote from Thomas Merton. To have a spiritual life is to have a life that is spiritual in all its wholeness. A life in which the actions of the body are holy because of the soul. And the soul is holy because of God dwelling and acting in it. I think it's interesting that when I preached the sermon on Jonah, which was the first sermon, it was two months ago now, from our Minor Prophet series, I closed with this thought. I'm going to close with this thought again today. As we find our home in Christ and fulfilling His purposes, we realize that the only reason we can walk in faithfulness is because He is faithful. Let's pray. As I was preaching, I just felt an impression, a sense, that there are marriages and families. They always need prayer, so I'm not talking about that. I'm not, our families always need prayer. But you're in an, an, a unique season of acute need, of special need, unusual stress or pressure on your family, on your marriage. I would love to pray for you this morning. Brothers and sisters are not looking around because we're in a prayerful mode right now and we want to be sensitive to what the Spirit is doing. But if you're desperate enough and hungry enough to say, I'm, I'll raise my hand because I don't know what else to do, or I just want to pray for you. And I think this simple act of faith to raise your hand, taking a risk, maybe that's a little bit of a price to pay to see God start to get active. Just raise your hand this morning and just keep it up. Just keep it up. Don't put it down. There's hands popping up all over, friends. You're not alone. Hands popping up all over. You keep that hand up, and I want to make one more request. I just, as I was saying it, the Holy Spirit said, call, call my single people. If you need healing in your heart, recalibration in your mind, whatever, I don't even know what the words are. But in the midst of a series on family, you want to get some healing here and some, some wholeness here. Raise your hand. Just raise, we're going to pray for everybody this morning. We're walking out of here in the joy of the Lord, confident in his faithfulness. Father, you see our hands raised. Some of us are probably feeling a little cynical this morning. And so first and foremost, for every person with a hand in the air this morning, I'm praying for the grace of hope to rain down on them. I pray that there'd be like a lightning bolt this morning that would strike these people with a sense of hope that you're for them, that you're with them, that what is is not what always will be. And this is for their good, and it's for the good of the world, for the life of the world. I pray for marriages, for children, for singles, that today we walk out of this place resting in your faithfulness and hopeful that there can be a difference in our lives, that we can be different human beings because we come from the future, from God's future. May your blessings rest, the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. May they rest on our families so we can present your family to the world. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together.